Hi there, folks, and welcome or welcome back to NTI's Japan Real Estate Podcast, brought to you, among others, by Humble Bunny, the best bilingual English and Japanese web design and e-commerce implementer here in Japan. If you've got a business, big or small, or are working for a business that needs a better online presence, hit them up on inquisitive at humblebunny.com. Ask to speak with Nate, tell him you heard about the company here on the podcast, and they'll sort you right out at very reasonable prices. You can't go wrong with these guys. Okay, so this episode, this is the one that we've all been waiting for, at least I have. It's a compilation of the last 12 months' most popular episodes. Now, these are the ones that you, our listeners, have been downloading and streaming and listening to more on average since they've been published than any other. And we're going to bring you some of the highlights of these episodes in order of publication. So it's kind of a top hits from the Japan Real Estate Podcast, if you will. Starting with 2020 and ending with our annual summary of 2021, or the projections for 2021, rather. And we've got the usual suspects in there, so topics that always seem to strike a chord with you folks in a variety of formats. So interviews with some of our guests here on the show, conversations, Q&A sessions with new clients, uh, updates on the state of the market, some how-to guides, commentary, and even one interview with yours truly which is actually the first one that we'll listen to. And although I'm just guessing here, but the main reason you might have loved this episode, um, aside from the interviewer, Andy Stotz, uh, and his deep baritone, is probably because he put me on the spot there and asked me to relate my biggest investment mistake here in Japan. So really, the reason you loved it so much is because you get to gloat, right? Let's be honest about that. Nah, just kidding. It was a good interview. And Andrew's podcast, My Worst Investment Ever, is an excellent one, well worth subscribing to. And we'll link to it, of course, in this episode show notes again. And we're also going to be linking to each and every one of these full episodes if you'd like to go back and listen to them. So our first top hit, here's Andrew Stotes and yours truly talking about my very own, slightly embarrassing, slightly amusing and quite educational beginner error on the My Worst Investment Ever podcast. The first thing that I wanted to do, we came in, you know, all guns blazing. We know what we're doing. We've been, we've been in the property market for a while now. We know all about the globalization and, you know, um, we've got three, four languages between us. And so the first thing we looked at is, uh, okay, we sat down with the tenancy leases and we compared the uh, rents that were payable in each and every one of those units. And we noticed that one of the units um, had slightly lower rent than the others. We're talking about something like 20 or $30 a month, so nothing mm -hmm. consequential. Um, but it seemed like the units were all on the same layout, same size. And um, for us at that point in time, um, we, we saw that the lease was about to end um, the tenancy lease was about to end uh, or needs to be renewed on that property that seemed to be getting slightly lower rent. And we're talking something like 14% uh, as opposed to 15 and a half. So mm. really nothing big, but um, me, you know, being an Excel sheet kind of guy, I'm like, well, it just doesn't look good. There's no reason for that one not to be making that same amount of rent. And we're only talking about a, a $20 or so a month extra. So we instructed the property manager that when that uh, tenancy lease uh, is about to be renewed, they should raise the rent to bring it up to speed with the other two units. Um, what we didn't know uh, at the time, because this was our first investment here, is that um, Japan being Japan and uh, the economy being in deflationary mode uh, for the 25 or so years prior to that purchase, you don't raise rents <laughs> in Japan. You just don't do that. And um, the other thing, I mean, 
a tenant would be paying the same rent that they paid when they moved into the property, say five or eight or 10 or even 20 years ago. Um, and they wouldn't ask you to reduce the rent when the contract is renewed, just because for them, any sort of negotiation is, is considered and feels like a conflict. So Japanese tend to avoid conflict uh, at any cost. So the tenants would never ask for, uh, for the landlord to reduce the rent. Um, but on the other hand, the landlord would never ask for the uh, rent to be raised when the lease is renewed, and definitely not if um, salaries and cost of living and everything hasn't been going up as well. Mm. Um, but we didn't know that at the time. What we also knew in theory but didn't actually realize in practice is that Japanese professionals are also not very confrontational. So your property manager or your real estate agent or your insurance agent, if they think that you're making a mistake, they wouldn't come right out and say, no, don't do that. Mm. They would um, maybe make a sort of a vague comment or ask you if you're sure that that's the course of action that you want to take. Or they wouldn't even say that that's not a good idea or anything of that sort. So when we instructed the property manager to do that, um, he sort of asked us, are you sure that might not be the best idea? I wouldn't recommend it. And we said, now we know what you're doing. Just tell him that and raise the rent. It's only $20, not a big deal. And um, what happened was, is that the tenants um, just promptly moved out, right? So they did not renew the lease. Um, what they ended up doing was probably move to another vacant unit in the very same building that was at that time renting for about half the rent. Mm. Um, and we stayed uh, with a vacant unit. And the second thing we learned straight after that is that um, Japanese property managers are professional and polite. All professionals here are professional and polite. They wouldn't um, swindle you or cheat you or go out of business and take your cash with them or any of that sort of thing. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're not salesmen or that they're going to give you um, complete and full disclosure and give you the best professional advice because they are at the end of the day salesmen and they want to sell. And what we found out is that the, uh, the city in which we purchased those units, Kitakyushu, is actually um, not the best uh, probably spot to pick for a beginner investor like ourselves. It's a very blue collar town. Um, there are a lot of new developments coming up there that are being priced rental-wise at a very similar price to the older developments. So tenants have a lot more options. And the population there, while not in sharp decline, is just about stable or slightly dropping. So it's not the best profile city in the world to invest in. Mm. And we ended up with a vacancy that took us, I think from memory, about a year and a half to fill again. Uh, which was quite painful. At that time, that was 33%, like a third of our income stream. So that was quite a hit for our, or our investment income stream. So that was quite a financial hit for us as well. Um, we ended up populating it at a much lower rent uh, amount and then just sold it at, I think, about 20 or 30% loss compared to when we bought it. Um, so yeah, that was a uh, quite painful, but uh, good lessons <laughs> learned. <laughs> well, what were the lessons that you learned from this? Um, I think we talk about a lot about uh, due diligence, right? And due diligence does tend to be, um, in our minds, due diligence tends to be a very practical sort of numbers-related matter. So we look at um, uh, income streams, we look at um, 
risk factors in the sense that, you know, something might suddenly, uh, there might be an unexpected expense down the road or things could be going better or, or not as good in particular locations. But we don't really think about um, cultural, cultural and emotional differences when we're dealing in another country. So yes, the numbers probably apply the same anywhere you go, but there are a lot of other factors that you need to take into account uh, and relying on your knowledge that was gained in another location when you've been investing in your backyard might be not really applicable, might be stark opposite of, of the place that you're going into next. So I guess due diligence also should include um, learning about the professionals that you're dealing with and learning to trust their advice and trying to um, read between the lines when they say something or trying to gauge what it is that they might be trying to say to you but are maybe avoiding for various reasons. Mm. I guess yeah. listen more would be yep. the most important thing. Yep, got it. Um, well, here's some of the things I take away. I mean, the first, there's a great saying in, in English, we say, let sleeping dogs lie. Like, don't poke at a dog that's comfortably sleeping or you could get bitten. Absolutely. Um, so that's kind of the, the first one. I think the other thing about for, for newbies in the area of property, particularly rental, they oftentimes forget about the damage that can be done by having, you know, downtime in between tenants. And that can destroy what looks like a beautiful yield. Um, it also reminds me a third thing is, you know, we have to be very careful as kind of, as you said, uh, Excel experts and, you know, that type of, you know, person that's a numbers-based person. Uh, one of, one of the, my great teachers, Dr. Deming, taught us that really the, the most important, num you know, the most important things oftentimes in business are unknown and unknowable or maybe unmeasurable. And so sometimes we think we can measure it in a spreadsheet but the human nature of the actual outcome of what we think is the right decision can be very, you know, very different. And then the, the third thing is, uh, I think in Asia, one thing I've learned is um, if you get a little bit of resistance, stop and listen, as you said. Whereas in the West, if we get some resistance, you know, part of what we want to do is get tough and push through it and all that. It's a challenge. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But in Asia, because you're never going to get a uh, same amount of resistance you would get, let's say in the West, a tiny amount of resistance is a signal uh, that we have to be much more attuned to and stop pushing something through and ask the question, okay, why am I getting this little bit of resistance? And I think that probably one of the biggest mistakes that people make coming to Asia uh, from the West is that they push through and think, you know, let's get this done. And that can be a huge mistake. So those are some of the things I take away. Anything you would add to that? Absolutely. I and mean, everything you've said is, is spot on. And we've since obviously learned that. And when we, uh, these days, when we provide the same sort of service for our customer, this was eight years ago. Now, these are exactly the things that we look at. So we, we, try to let people know that when somebody, a professional that you're working with is telling you uh, that could be a little bit difficult, that should throw out all the possible red flags. That, just a little bit diff difficult is not an invitation to a dance. It doesn't mean, that, okay, let's, let's do this. It's, it's quite the opposite of that. I mean, 
if you were anywhere else in the world, then th there would be a lot of resistance coming in at this point. So you really want to stop and listen and try to understand what that person is uh, trying to say to you. Right. So as Andrew summarized it at the end of that talk, and I do recommend you go and listen to it if you happen to have missed it. It'll be in the show notes. When in Asia, talk less, listen more. Absolutely spot on. All right. So our next most popular episode from last year is also an interview. And this one's with Christopher Dillon, originally from Canada, now based in Hong Kong. Now, Chris runs a successful business communication training firm, and he's also director of the Canadian Academy of Independent Scholars. He's a regular speaker in many events, and he's routinely interviewed uh, for a whole bunch of business and news media channels. But what we were most interested in uh, for the purpose of the interview is the series of property guides that he's written, covering a variety of countries all around the world, Japan included. And we talked about all things related to Japan's property market, how it compares with others. And similar to the previous chat, what exactly is involved in conducting due diligence before purchasing here? So here are some highlights from that interview with Christopher Dillon. Back to Japan, which is basically our focus here on the podcast. How does it compare to other Asian markets on all of these fronts uh, that you discussed? I mean, your book touches on a lot of the stuff uh, that we've already spoken here on the show many times. So natural disasters and depreciation, the abandoned homes and the deaths um, with the aging population and so forth. But there's also a lot of stuff there that even um, I, uh, you know, being someone who lives and breathes this sector on a daily basis, I didn't know much about. So um, stuff like the Buraku you mentioned, which are Japan's historical, yeah. um, the social menial labor outcasts, and they've got their own little wards um, that are obviously treated differently, at least by Japanese buyers and sellers. Um, yes. Any, any other sort of things that you think first-time foreign property buyers should be aware of? Well, yeah, you know, it, it really depends. I mean, if you are, um, it, it, and when I say it depends, it depends on how much you know. I mean, if you're like a lot of the friends that I have and had in Japan who are foreigners who've lived there for a while, you've absorbed a lot of the cultural and, and sort of background information just by, you know, living and breathing there. But if you're new to Japan, um, I really strongly recommend that you immerse yourself in you know, read the newspaper every day, um, improve the, the quality of your spoken Japanese so that you can pick up on the cultural cues and, and really understand what's going on around you. The more you learn and the more you know about the society that you're buying in, um, the, the, the stronger your position is going to be. Um, we have uh, a tradition here in Hong Kong of um, real estate developers will, will show up and they'll rent a function room at one of the high-end hotels in central Hong Kong and they'll, they'll sell homes to people who, in countries where the, the buyer has never been to. And this has always been a, a source of con a total amazement to me that people would buy in a place that they hadn't visited, didn't know anything about, and basically just buying blind. So the more you know, the stronger the position that you're going to be in. Um, there's a lot of things that I, I, I really like about Japan. Like, for example, as a foreigner, you face almost no restrictions on buying land in Japan. I mean, there are some things in terms of uh, watersheds in Hokkaido and, and facilities, uh, land near military facilities. But in general, um, it's very, very easy, and there are very few restrictions on foreigners buying land. And you compare that with, say, Thailand, the Philippines, and Indonesia, where it's all but impossible for foreigners to buy land. Um, the same goes for Hong Kong and China. All of the land in Hong Kong, except 
um, what's underneath St. John's Cathedral in Central is owned by the government, and you don't own it. You just have it on a long-term lease, anything where from 50 years to, uh, in the case of my apartment here in Hong Kong, it's on a 999-year lease, which is virtually owning. Um, same thing with China. The, the state owns all of the land, so you can't own it. So that gives Japan actually quite a uh, quite a big advantage that way. Um, and another big advantage that Japan has uh, is the fact that as a foreigner, you are not treated differently from a tax perspective. So if you take a place like Singapore, um, if you're a citizen, you pay one rate of tax when you buy. If you are a permanent resident, uh, you pay a different rate of tax. And if you're a non-resident, you pay an even uh, an even higher rate of tax, whereas Japan is, is blind to that. So as, as a foreigner coming in to buy, I find that to be um, to be very, very uh, reassuring. Yeah, and obviously, I mean, if you're buying for your own use, a holiday home, um, in a, like you're saying, in a country that you've uh, never been to or haven't been to frequently enough to understand, that's, um, that's obviously a concern. But let, let's say you're buying as an investor and you're looking at a foreign country. Um, obviously, you, you might be spreading your portfolio over a few countries, so there's no way that you could really be um, intimately familiar with each and every place, nor could you be uh, there physically to handle the transactions and the tenancies and so forth. So what would you advise to, um, let's say, a foreign investor who's been reading your books and other resources out there and has pinpointed a particular country that they're interested in? Um, how would they manage that sort of thing remotely? Well, so the, the, the first thing is, um, if you are going to do it hands-on, um, you really need to take a cold, hard look at how much of your time you're willing to devote to that process. Um, if, if you are going to, you know, for example, I'm sitting in Hong Kong and I own property in Japan, I, that requires bandwidth, mental bandwidth for me to, to actually do that. And you need to ask yourself, is, is owning property directly the best way to do it? It, in fact, might make sense. Uh, might make more sense for you to own uh, a REIT like I've done in China because that's something that's um, it's divisible and it's liquid. I could sell you know 10 of the shares in that. I could sell my whole holding. I could increase my holding, whereas obviously you can't do that with an apartment. Uh, and there are other ways that you can go about that as well. You could buy shares in, uh, in developers. You could buy emerging market debt, for example. Um, there's, so there's lots of ways you can do it. You don't physically have to own the property to do it. Um, if you are going to go down that route, you know, make sure that you know what you're getting yourself in for. So I would say, you know, go get some dirt on your shoes, walk around, learn as much as you possibly can um, about the country, about the city, right down to the neighborhood, uh, because the more you know, the better better placed you're going to be. And the research part of it is is really hard to overstate simply because um, people get an idea in their head and they're going to buy, and if they haven't actually done the research, they don't really know um, how good a deal they're getting. And, and using the example, again, of, the, of the, the shows that come here to Hong Kong, I've seen Japanese properties sold here, you know, in some of these shows uh, that 
basically it was junk. It was stuff that had been picked over in Japan. I don't think anybody in Japan would have bought it. Yield wasn't great. Location wasn't great. But here in Hong Kong, everything is so expensive that it actually looked like a good deal. And that, again, was Christopher Dillon, author of the Landed series of books, Global Country-Specific Property Guides, highly recommended. And we'll link to the books page and to the entire conversation in this episode show notes as well. Now, moving right on, and to hammer home Christopher Dillon's point regarding due diligence and relationships and partnerships, another of your favorite episodes from last year was this chat that we had with one of our uh, then-potential clients, now a fully engaged client, who's purchased some Japanese ski holiday properties on his own with the notion of potentially renting them out as short-term stay accommodation in his absence, only to find out things were not exactly as they seemed. Here's a segment from that call. Okay, so, so you've purchased there and you've been using it just for your own purposes or have you been leasing it out as well? Yeah, um, so I purchased two um, apartments here um, thinking, thinking whether it would be possible, well, thinking that I, I would possibly uh, um, rent out one apartment um, during the winter time, you know, if I wanted to use the apartment in winter, which I did, um, but I also wanted to get some income to cover the um, relatively high management fees. However, however, the issue is that um, a lot of the buildings here, when you purchase the properties, they have in uh, as a clause of purchase, as a part of the uh, building property rule, that you can't short-term lease. Correct. <laughs> yes, that's a big issue. Now, I didn't understand how serious and how difficult the situation is, but there's a, there was another, um, there was a Japanese, there was a Japanese investor um, who, who purchased uh, five or six properties in the same building. And they, you know, they wanted to Airbnb and they actually somehow got an Airbnb permission. They got, oh, sorry, they got a hotel um, permission. Yep. And the condo board has now taken them to court <laughs> to fight that. So, well, the wow, legislation, it's like a, it's a very serious thing. Yeah. The legislation changed in uh, mid 2018. They've um, they've given building uh, management companies and the owners co-ops um, the authority to prohibit this. Yeah. So okay. even if somebody had a license, yeah, if somebody had a license uh, even from before, the license might not be officially cancelled, but the building uh, yeah. management company can definitely tell them to stop. Yeah, which was I was surprised about that. You know, um, I was. To be honest, I, I was very surprised that, in a sense, the building co-op um, has a lot of power. <laughs> a lot of, um, and, you know, I'm, I'm fine with it. You know, uh, we, you know, when in Rome do as the Romans do. But seeing, wow, it's and then I've gone to a few co-op meetings where um, a lot of a lot of the local Japanese they are very angry. Like they really do not want. Um, short-term leasing in resort condos. Yeah, they're ridiculous. Um, even, even though it's you know it's really affecting it really affects the property values, the resale values of, of these buildings. Oh, the whole economy um, of the town. I mean, these are tourist towns, right? Like the the idea yeah. of not allowing tourists to rent in the town is is just preposterous. But um, yeah, Japan's old-fashioned yeah. that way. I mean, I can understand. I'm can, I can you know. Being an owner here, I can understand from both perspectives. You know, having lots of um, 
strange, what, what they say, strange guests who no one knows anything about coming in and possibly damaging the property, you know, um, which all the owners then have to pay for the repairs and everything. I can understand that. At the same time, wow, uh, it, not, you know, being in a resort town where the economy is primarily based on tourism and not being, and, you know, pretty much not having any short term leasing, um, and the hotel, you know, the hotel options here are, are very limited yeah. as well. But uh, so I think that's why most of the people that come to my area, they are, you know, they're only here for the weekend. Luckily, there's Shinkansen is very good. There's two Shinkansen here, so the transport here is very convenient and good. But um, yeah, uh, it's I was, I was surprised. I'll be honest with you, I was surprised. Um, the the stance that you know the. Um, sort of like, uh, may I say, civil war that's mm-hmm. going on in my building. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, it's, it, it, it's very, and it's, it's a very uh, cult, cultural thing as well. I think that, you know, the, in my building, is it's half owned by foreigners, half owned by local Japanese. I find that the foreigners are more open to, um, you know, short-term leasing, Airbnb, things like that, yeah. um, whereas the local... Um, the Japanese, and I can understand their position. I mean, you know, they bought they bought these properties during the bu- bubble era. You know, when the properties were super expensive. Um, obviously, you know, the foreigners are more open to um, uh, um, short term leasing for the investment sake, whereas the original Japanese owners they're totally against it. And uh, I was, I was, the reason I'm really surprised is during the um, you know, the uh, building condo meetings where they discuss these, the annual meeting. You know, Japan, Japanese and, and Japan are very polite and, and um, well-mannered. Wow, those meetings got very heated. Yeah. Lots of swearing. <laughs> I've never seen Japanese swearing and, <laughs> and telling, you know, the, uh, the, um, the other Japanese uh, Airbnb investor to literally um, swearing, get, the, get out of this building, get out of this town. It was really heated. <laughs> did so you um, glad to stay out of it? Did you not? Did <laughs> you not people. know this when you purchased? Was not that not a, Did you not know that about these restrictions when you purchased the properties? I I knew there were restrictions on Airbnb. I knew there were restrictions on Airbnb. Um, and to be honest, I'm not too fast because I wasn't really looking. I wasn't really looking to. Um, Get any money, get money, or make money from um, short, you know, Airbnb or things like that. What I was thinking, though, what I was thinking, though, is, um, you know, when I have when I have friends or business colleagues or or clients from, you know, Hong Kong, China, Asia, they'd love to come to Japan. And I was thinking at that time, well, you know, if I have two places, um, I have. Which which I uh, which happens, you know, I can um, short term lease to my friends, my colleagues, my you know um, other family members. Well, that should still be or, doable now. Um, I mean, you can. That's what I thought. Not, not the that's rent, what not the rent part. Yeah. I mean, that would be between you and them. But I'm, I mean, yeah. you're allowed to let your friends and family stay there, right? Yes, I'm allowed to let my friends and family stay there, um, but because of so. Because of this court case that's now going on between the um, the building management and uh, you know the Airbnb guy, the the police got involved. That's why I can't believe how serious it got. 
you know, the local police got involved and they're now doing an investigation of who's been renting, who hasn't been renting and sending, you know, warning notes and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I was really, you know, uh, obviously if I have friends, obviously I ha- if I have friends or cousins, you know, clients um, or family that stay here, I want them to, you know, if they're staying here for a while, I want them to be contributing to the electricity costs and things like that, right? Yeah, somebody uh, comes moment, knocking on their door to ask them what they're doing there and how they got there is not a, not pleasant, is it? Yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. And, you know, if they get warning letters and they, you know, have to explain that they're, you know, my family or my friends, it's really difficult. You know, it's not, it's not ideal for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but luckily, you know, I wasn't planning. I wasn't required, you know, I didn't really... Uh, purchased the property as an investment, as a, uh, a rental investment vehicle. Um, it was more for my own enjoyment uh, or, and my own use. I was just hoping, I was actually hoping in the future that would that position would change um, in order for the uh, my investment, you know, my property investment to, you know, have, uh, how do I put this, have more options in terms of um, capital appreciation and in terms of, you know, rental income. But to be honest, I don't think it's going to happen. I don't <laughs> think so, no. I mean, even if it could just cover the monthly fees, that would be good. But um, we, we've seen yeah. it getting worse, not better, i got to be honest with you. It's getting worse and not better. You're totally right. Yeah. Um, you're totally right. Uh, you know, uh, I, I, if going back, I'm, I may have looked into this a bit more carefully. Probably I would have at that, that. Probably I would have just gotten one property if I knew knowing the situation would be uh, like this. Um, but yeah, uh, I'm still. I'm you know I'm still very glad that I. It's a wonderful place, and the price was amazing, um, and it's a wonderful building, and the community is really great. So I don't regret making the purchase. But mm, management fees can get be quite high. In these buildings, yeah, um, they're usually about two, two, three hundred bucks a month each, right? No, um, so my, I've, so I've got a fifty-six, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, fifty square meter. That's about, yeah, that's about three hundred, uh, three hundred US, yeah, yeah three hundred US a month. And then the, I've got a seventy square meter, a larger seventy square meter. Oh, that okay. is, that's about six hundred. Oh wow! US a month. Oh my god! Okay. Yeah. Yeah. They are, well, actually, more about four, five hundred. But when you add in, oh, so when you add in the, it's not only the management fee; you have the repair fund you yep. have to contribute to, yeah. which is quite expensive. And I've got to say, the electricity and water costs here are, are quite high. In the countryside, the they are, yeah. Yeah, in the countryside, yeah. Mm. And I, I tell you, there's no insulation here; is pretty poor. Mm. <laughs> so you pretty much, unless you get double glazing and stuff done, which I know a lot of people have, wow, the gas bills add up really quickly. I think I had one month, uh, one month my during the dead of winter, most people get a gas bill of about $200 US a month. Oh. Which, okay. uh, you so know, 200 to um, a month. So what's mm. the plan moving forward? What are you going to do with them? So it's still quite, I mean, moving forward, I might sell off, larger apartment yeah. I might sell off the larger apartment um, you know because I can't I really can't justify oh, well it's only, you know, it's only me so I don't really need two apartments mm. um, and keep the uh, smaller apartment just to enjoy myself um, you know for again 
when I need to do when I need to um, come back into Japan for uh, during my visa runs or short uh, work breaks or when I come here for snowboarding. Um, so yeah, I'll probably keep the small one. Also, the uh, smaller one, the building management fees, are, because they're charged by square footage, um, the building management fee is much more reasonable. Yeah, and repair fees much more reasonable. And you know, being one person, I don't use up the whole space of the larger apartment. Yeah. Um, and also the heating, the heating and electricity costs. Um, for example, I've got two two uh, inbuilt gas heaters on the larger room um, compared to one. So my my gas bill in the larger room is basically doubled. Okay. Um, yeah. So yeah, I'll, I'll probably keep the smaller one, but sell the larger one. At, um, right now, it's not urgent. Um, because you know, right now we're in spring summer. So I heard this is the, if I'm selling in spring summer, it's really the prices are significantly lower. And a lot of people um, I've noticed in this area, winter time, um, people don't really sell uh, properties in winter. All the families use the use the property during winter time, and as soon as spring summer comes, then they sell them off. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's also a bit of a problem for agents to bring people up there to have a look in the winter. Yeah. Um, just oh, a, really? Yeah, yeah, accessibility can sometimes be an issue. Not everybody can and uh, does have the... Because um, agents like to take people over by car, but if they don't have the facilities to drive yeah. around there, it's a bit more difficult. Oh, okay. Okay. Oh, that, that, that's interesting. Because I, I have noticed... Uh, um, you know, because I, I talked to my agent that he, he he said that he mostly sells all his properties um, in the spring and summertime. Yeah. Um, yeah. I yeah, that's quite interesting. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So so how can we help? What what did you need? I, obviously, we can't help you with tenants. I'm sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Um, so uh, when I when I purchase the property, what the you know I thought I you know obviously I didn't I I tried to research as much as possible. Um, what I but one thing the one thing I didn't take into account was how to manage the property post purchase. What I mean by that is um, you know in Australia in Hong Kong in China um, when we you know when you purchase a property. It's relatively simple to, you know, get utilities set up, um, to get a, a property agent to help manage your property and to get bills paid. What I didn't realize is in Japan, it's much more difficult. And yes. what I mean by that is, for example, um, my, build, my monthly building management fee and repair fund contribution. In, a, in, a, in Australia, in Hong Kong, um, they'll send me an invoice and I'll, you know, pay it by my card or I'll do a bank transfer. They'll email you an invoice, you mean? And they'll email me, yeah, yeah they'll email or mail me an invoice. No, that doesn't, However, doesn't happen here. It doesn't happen here. No. I, I never, uh, to be honest, I never thought, it just didn't occur to me. I'm so sorry didn't. about this, mate. Yeah. And so for, for my building, they only, they only, do direct debit for building management and from a um, Japanese account repair fund. Yeah. yeah, from a Japanese bank account. In order to get a Japanese bank account, I need to have a Japanese residency visa. Do you mention? Yeah. 
So even though I can purchase the property, so the, the irony is it's very easy to purchase a property here at, um, as a tourist, but it's very difficult to pay any of your bills. So Correct. that's that, my problem. I thought um, I would find a real estate agent yeah. who could, you know, you know, in other in Australia or wherever or Hong Kong, you should find a real estate agent and they'll handle it for you. Yeah. Most no. of the real estate agents that I talk to, they only handle properties in Tokyo, Osaka, major cities. Yep. They don't deal in um, countryside, yep. I think, in other so areas, this, uh, which um, I was very surprised. This yeah. gap that you run across um, between the official country policy and the practical on-the-ground practices um, mm. is exactly the reason that we've been in business. <laughs> <laughs> You're pretty much the only guys, I, so I think, that deal with this. Because, um, <clears throat> uh, I to be honest, I contacted a few, I've contacted a few um, property management companies in Tokyo, everywhere. Tokyo, Osaka, um, even um, uh, uh, Japanese companies with branch offices in Hong Kong. Yeah. No one, pretty much they've, either they say they can't handle it or they've referred me to you. To be honest, I knew I knew about you from your blogs, which were which were very useful. So when I was doing my research um, to purchase a property, um, I you know I was listening to your to your uh, blogs. I should have listened more, obviously. <laughs> um, but uh, so when you know, so most of the property companies in Tokyo basically referred me to you um, to you know discuss how to handle handle the practicalities of owning a property in the in yeah. In, in Japan, so yeah, we, can, foreigner, we can yeah. do all of this. Um, well, that's what we do for our clients on a regular basis. What we're going to oh, do is we're going to be um, you're going to give us authority to act in Japan on your behalf. Okay. And then we're going to be the contact person for the building management company and yeah. the uh, tax department and anybody else that can't you know wrap their heads around uh, sending uh, statements overseas or receiving money from overseas. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Because. Uh, the other issue I've been having is that um, when I contact, okay, so that's with the building management, when, with my utilities, my electricity and my gas, they don't send bills overseas. They don't even email bills. No. They send a card um, yep. that to my building, yep. which I then need to go to 7-Eleven. Um, they don't have online payment facilities, Correct. which is really, <laughs> that's my head in. Um, so I have to go to 7-Eleven. The issue is, if I'm not in Japan, yeah. I can't pay for my gas. I can't pay for my electricity. I call them up, and it's very... they have, No one speaks Japanese, and no one speaks English. I know I'm in Japan. I know I'm in Japan. I need to know Japanese. But it's very difficult as an English foreign speaker to totally have no English contact with the utility company as well. Yeah. I can't even explain my situation. Because they don't speak English. Yeah, when, same, when you call up the helpline. Yeah. Same goes for City Hall and the tax department in most places as well. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, if you, if you could assist me in, yep. you yep. know, uh, handling, the, handling these sort of day-to-day -day issues, uh, I'd be very grateful.
Yes, so all's well that ends well. We did take over and help this um, frustrated buyer with his management, or rather his lack of ability to manage um, situation. And he's now far less stressed, I'm happy to report. Uh, haven't heard from him regarding selling off one or both of these properties, but we should be able to assist him with that when the time comes as well. And just about the same time as when this episode was recorded, all hell broke loose. The rumors regarding a strange and highly contagious flu-like virus that spread out of China became a reality. Flights and international travel ground down to a halt. The Tokyo Olympics have been cancelled or at least postponed. And we've started seeing some very interesting, highly discounted properties become available for purchase in places such as Tokyo and Osaka at prices that we at least haven't seen for a good few years. Our clients were quick to react, and for that reason, most likely your next favorite episode of the year was the one we'll hear some segments from now, and really all that was is just a collection of available property listings um, that were um, advertised for sale in various central locations around the country that have suddenly become far more affordable due to the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic. So here it is, some excerpts from our Corona Bounty episode. First and foremost, uh, some cheaper residential condo units, uh, mansion rooms, as they're known here. And we'll start with Tokyo and surrounding areas. So we've seen one unit in Funabashi City, which is a medium-sized city, just over 620,000 people. Population on the rise, actually fast on the rise, which is quite rare for Japan. Major commercial center and bedroom community to Tokyo itself. So it's only 36 minutes uh, by train from central Tokyo just under one hour to Narita International Airport. And this one is pretty luxurious. So family-sized unit on the sixth floor of a nine-floor reinforced concrete block. Two bedrooms plus living room, dining room, kitchen, what's known as a 2LDK here. Heated floors, tatami mat, bedrooms, uh, built-in closets, cupboards in each and every room. And the building, which was built in 1991, even comes with parking spots, which is really rare in large metropolitan centers in Japan. Uh, it's about 70 square meter in size, so again, family-sized unit, and it's listed at 27 million Japanese yen, which is about 250,000 US or so, uh, tenanted and generating about 6% net pre-tax. Now, I don't know if you've been following our podcast uh, or the market in general or not, but if you have been, I probably don't need to tell you how rare it is to find any property of this size and age that generates this kind of yield. Um, let alone a property that's this close to central Tokyo, which is arguably the most expensive spot in Japan. So that's just one example of what we've been seeing um, on the residential front here. If you're going for something a bit smaller, older, more suburban, uh, we've seen one in Hachiyoji City, again next to Tokyo, actually officially in the greater Tokyo metropolitan area as opposed to the first one, uh, even though it's actually about an hour to the west of central Tokyo. So further just under an hour by train uh, to Shinjuku, Shibuya, the central western districts, which are probably the city's uh, best-known business and fashion hubs, respectively. Uh, this one is a studio unit, and it is, let's see, just under 19 square meter in size, balcony facing east, so plenty of sunlight, and it's listed, are you ready for this, for 3 million yen. So we're talking about 28,000 or so US dollars. Uh, tenanted, again, most of the units that our clients uh, ask us to research for them are tenanted because they prefer to buy turnkey straight into income generation, not into expenses. And this one is yielding, hold on to your horses, 9.6% net pre-tax yield 
per annum, right? So 28,000 US dollars to buy, net pre-tax annual income just over 3,300 US or so, which including all purchase costs works out to be just under 10% net pre-tax. Now, this one probably has less capital growth potential than the Funabashi property, just because Hachioji is a bit further from central Tokyo uh, compared to Funabashi. Also, Hachioji's population is stable, but not really growing much. And it also has less going for it uh, industries, economy-wise. So it really is only a bedroom community to Tokyo and no, under, no other industries to speak of. Um, although it's a pretty big one as satellite towns go, so well over half a million people. But I mean, 28,000 US is just insane. And again, nothing that we've seen in this area um, for well over four or five years. Okay, one more maybe in that same area, a bit further afield, uh, Maebashi City. Um, population about 330,000, so a bit smaller than those other two cities, but also growing. Uh, it's about an hour and a half north of Tokyo and about an hour north of Saitama, which is the closest biggest city. Now, Maebashi has its own economy, so it's a nice and stable uh, economy there, regional commercial center again, although more on the blue-collar side compared to Funabashi, so a lot of manufacturing, agriculture, uh, some traditional arts, similar industries. They're pretty well known for producing tofu, for example, and um, interestingly enough, uh, for producing traditional samurai helmets. That's still a thing in Japan. And probably because they're also very well known and popular uh, for tourism. They got a lot of greenery, uh, fresh water, and a lot of history. Some pretty famous Japanese poets hailed from Maebashi throughout history, for example. So pretty robust economy, and of course, again, also a bedroom community, uh, not just to Tokyo, but to Saitama City itself. An hour and a half from Tokyo as well is not such a long commute, especially for people who stay in Tokyo during the week, uh, then go back home to their families on the weekend, which is what a lot of Japanese company staffers tend to do. This one was built in 1992. It's a studio unit, but with a separate kitchen, so what's called a 1K. About 21 square meter in size, also listed for 3 million yen, so about $28,000 again, and again generating about 9% net pre-tax. Now this one is on a commercial lease, which means a company has been leasing it since 1995. So the same tenant in place for 25 years. Uh, obviously nice stable cash cow there, although you will want to bear in mind that if and when that tenant does move out, you're probably looking at something like $10,000-$15,000 in renovation costs. So wear and tear after 25 years or more of tenancy uh, can of course be quite significant, but a lot of people wouldn't mind that considering the stable commercial tenant that's already in place for so long, and of course the price and the location. So there you go, crisis brings opportunity, and this one's no different. Property investors have been very busy in 2020, and they're not showing any signs of slowing down in 2021 so far. And neither should they, considering that um, as the vaccines have started rolling out, the current state of affairs might slowly come to an end or at least start improving um, slightly, which is what we all hope for, of course. So the next few months might be one of the last times we'll see these prices in these locations, at least for the next few years or so. Okay, so now going a bit off topic into the wonderful world of Japanese design, architecture, and carpentry, your next favorite episode of 2020 was a fantastic conversation that we've had with Anne Kotz, originally from Idaho in the USA, now a resident of Tsukuba here in Japan. And Anne is an architecture student and interior designer turned carpenter turned gluten-free baker. 
And while we haven't yet had the uh, pleasure of tasting her breads and pastries, we have had the pleasure of having her um, here on the show, talking about things related to Japanese building techniques, carpentry, and the joys of helping to preserve some of Japan's most beautiful traditional structures. So here are some snippets from that interview. So I did all kinds of stuff. I mean, I was drawing the plans, but I was also, you know, sometimes running a jack jackhammer or, you know, mixing and pouring cement or puttying and, you know, prettifying the old beams and things or sanding and painting. I mean, you name it, I probably did it. <laughs> so, and that's really what works with those old cranky uh, architects and, uh, and, and uh, carpenters. I mean, that's what they really, ex you know, they just, they just really like somebody that um, can just pick up a tool and use it and doesn't have to be, you know, told everything to do. So yeah. that's a really good thing. I mean, I was asked to serve tweet tea. No. Twice. <laughs> Twice, that's all. <laughs> After that, the word kind of got around, and uh, so I didn't really get asked to do that again. You know, if it's my client, then, yeah, I'd serve tea. But I don't serve tea just because a woman ought to do it, you know. So. Yeah. And nobody ever actually dared to ask me to make a photocopy. Or fax, right? <laughs> or fax, oh, yeah. Seriously, those guys all use faxes. So, uh, but... But anyway, you know, it, you know, the the biggest thing that I found was that I just had to learn the language, and that's something that's still just absolutely daunting. Because, you know, you think you're pretty fluent in Japanese, you get all cocky about your Japanese and your accent and stuff, until you have to uh, explain your plans to a seven-year-old Ibaraki bin speaker who has no teeth. <laughs> I mean, seriously, those guys are so. They're so hard to understand, you know. Sometimes I actually had to get somebody to translate for me, you know, from from Japanese to Japanese. From Japanese to Japanese. <laughs> yes. Because Ibaraki-ben, you know, it's really funny. Ibaraki-ben is so, it, it, it's so interesting because they lose vowels. You know, there's, in Japanese, traditional, in typical Tokyo Japanese, there's a i u a o Yeah. But in Ibaraki, they say a i i it e. <laughs> lose like two vowels. It's like what happened? So, so I mean, instead of saying iro en pizza, they say iru in pizza. Oh. And, yeah. So it's like really hard to understand. And then you know, and then a person that has no teeth left, it's like wow, you know. <laughs> so, so and then you know, and then they uh, they uh, they would like to have a little bit of fun with me. So you know, sometimes they'd be like. You know, they knew very well that I had no idea what the yonsun gakutsuta or is, you know, what's the, what what part of the wood is the keshomian. I had no, you know, they knew I didn't know that. Well, everybody knows that. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so, but they'd have a little fun with me sometimes with that, so. Oh, and also, uh, another thing that just was hysterically, you know, it was, it was both really daunting. You um, have to be able to translate between shaku and soon measurements and and centimeters and, oh. and you know i grew up with inches so there's two translations right there oh my god so, yeah i mean it just really i mean first of all americans can go jump in a lake for you still using inches i think that's stupid but <laughs> but anyway i'm an american so i get to say that but anyway <laughs> anyway so um the shaku and soon thing it's it, it just was really 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 confusing at first and then you have to just know all the conversions off the top of your head because, well, you know, hopefully hopefully none of those um um measuring mistakes actually went to production right you would have picked them up before you actually start banging the wood together right 
Oh yeah, yeah. oh yeah, okay. yeah. That's, <laughs> yeah that's, but but it is an issue because you know you you just have to you just have to keep it straight, you know. And for me, the biggest issue was that you know, in a foot, a foot and a shaku are almost the same thing, right? But a foot is divided into six, and a shaku is divided into or so twelve. I mean, and a shaku is divided into ten. So half a foot is six inches, but half a shaku is five soon. So, you know, I just couldn't, I couldn't get it through my head that people would be like, hanjaku, hanjaku, and I'd be riding a six, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so it was, <laughs> that was a little bit dangerous. But yeah, nothing, no, no big, no big problems happened because of that. It was just mostly my time that was taken up. So. Yeah. But uh, but anyway, back to um, Kenshiku Koboyu, I started working over there. And uh, those guys, they're really incredible. And it's not just the carpenters. The tile guys and the roofers and the plasters and all those traditional tradespeople are just amazing. I mean, like the, the uh, plasters, you know, they train with a tub of water. And they have to, they fill the tub of water completely up to the rim and then they have to practice running their trowel over it without spilling any water so they have to get the bottom of the trowel wet and slide it across the surface of the of the water and not spill any over the edge that's like martial arts training isn't it it really is it's just really surprising and it's just really amazing and, and here's the other thing that this is this illustration i think is the most striking to an architect who was trained in the u.s in a two by four house in the u.s when you frame a window in you have to factor at least an inch of screen space that's where that's the open space around the window so you have to have like an extra inch of space in uh, all sides on all sides of where the window is going to fit because the frame is never going to be true. So, you know, you just have to factor that in. So you, yeah. you, you make the space for the window bigger than the, what the window is designed to be. And then when they put it in, they shim it up. They put these little um, supports in and they shim it up so it's straight and true. And then when they, uh, when they f finish out the house, then they put trim pieces on it to cover up the opening. And then, you know, they also put insulation in there and they cover everything up. So there's all these trim pieces all over everything. And those are to basically cover up the holes, you yeah. know, cover up the spaces. And I tell you what, I, I was never more shocked. I, the, the first house I worked on, I um, designed the window space. And then I tried to design the frame bigger to have a shim space. And the guys were like, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, I'm putting in a shim space. And they're like, what's that for? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm like, well, that's a shim space. And so what happened was they framed the window to the exact the bloody dimensions of the built window. Really? Not, not, a, not a millimeter apart? Nothing. Wow. No. And then so these were wooden windows in that house. And then the window, the, the window maker came in and he just slid the window exactly into place. That's amazing. Now, it was. I was so shocked. And I just couldn't, you know, at first I couldn't believe it. And then I was like, well, you know, and so the next thing you do in, a, in, a, in an American construction is you have to caulk around the window, right? 
and they're like, and I'm like, aren't we going to caulk? And they're like, what are we going to caulk? And I'm like, around the window. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, why would we do that? <laughs> and so, so turns out that in a traditional Japanese wooden house, basically the humidity will expand the wood and seal it. Oh. So it seals the wood of the window to the frame. So there's no need for caulking. And I'm just wow. like, yeah. <laughs> so, so that's just absolutely, I mean, that was just absolutely stunning for me. The fabulous Anne Cotts. That one is honestly one of my favorite episodes too. We can't feature all of it here on this compilation, obviously. It's already gone quite quite long, but it's really an eye-opener, and I highly recommend you hop over to the show notes and listen to it from start to finish. If you've got a bit of time, really fascinating stuff there and quite a few laughs. Right then, so next to your uh, next favorite, this one is another call with a potential client, and we're talking about uh, small buildings, investing in small residential or mixed-purpose or commercial buildings. Um, we give some samples in various locations, mostly in Tokyo, because that was he was interested in. We talk about loans, um, the ability to get loans as a resident or as a non-resident, and also a little bit about um, our services and how we can help with the purchase and then management of a property, how much we charge, and so forth. Um, that one's also been downloaded and streamed hundreds and hundreds of times, so apparently we found some value in it. So here are a few segments from that conversation for you. So something also that would be interesting at looking at in, in, in Japan, uh, I've had a quick look in, uh, in Tokyo that's totally, well, hard to do. Not cheap. Yeah, let's say that. Yeah. <laughs> let's say that. Um, so, well, haven't, uh, I don't really have the time and expertise or the time to build the expertise to look around, uh, I mean, of all the uh, second tier cities in Japan to see where that would make most sense and what kind of, uh, well, which location would be available for, let's say, a mid-sized budget, budget with uh, enough uh, visibility as to getting tenants and, uh, and good cash flow. When you say mid-sized budget, what kind of budget are we talking about? Let's say in Tokyo, I haven't found really anything less than one million dollars. Yeah. Uh, and and even one million, you'd have well, it's not it's not really good thing. So I'm more thinking around let's say five hundred, six hundred, uh, this kind of uh, this kind of budget. Okay, well, we just had a bit of a research done for another customer on exactly the same topic. So if you give me a minute, I'll just have a look at the results. And then I should be able to give you some samples of what's doable in other cities. Just give me a sec. Sure. Um, okay, so the cheapest I saw in Tokyo, and this is just a five-unit building with one office on the ground floor and then four residential units on top. And that one is $88 million. So mm -hmm. about uh, let's call it eight hundred thousand US, um, and then I've got one in Yokohama that's actually quite reasonable. So four units, one shop, one office, and so just two floor building, one shop. Oh no, sorry, four floor building. It's one unit per floor, and you got one shop, one office, and two rooms, two one Ks, and that one is. Um, 65,800, so just about six, what, 660,000 or so? Yeah, something like that. Um, 
That one's residential, residential, residential. Just give me a sec. Um, okay, there's one in Osaka, which is 77 million. And that one has one office and six rooms. And, um, you're not interested in completely commercial, are you? Yeah, well, small ones. I mean, just, you know, two offices and one shop or just a three-floor building with one shop or one office per floor kind of thing. Mm, taking into account the current situation. <laughs> yeah, businesses are closing these days. <laughs> it might, might be wise to wait a little bit. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, you know, the upside of the current situation is that they are cheaper now. Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay, and then I've got another one in Tokyo again, just under 89 million, which is one shop and six units. Okay. And another one in Tokyo again, same price, 88 million, uh, one office and three bedroom, uh, three units, three residential units. Mm -hmm. And. Uh, Another one in Tokyo for 70 more, 74 and a half million, actually. That's the cheapest one. Um, and that was built in 2016. That's a really nice one. One office, four one-room units. That's in uh, Koto. Koto, yeah. Yeah. And anything else to bear with me? Okay, that's just two shops. So, Holy Commercial again. And... No, that's it. That's what I've got. So maybe Yokohama, maybe even Osaka. I think definitely Nagoya and Fukuoka would probably have deals. Maybe not quite 50 million, but maybe something closer to 60, 70. Uh, that would probably suit what you're looking for. And these were all built um, 2000 and later. So they're all in pretty good shape. Interesting. So it's doable if you don't mind specifically Tokyo. Uh, it is doable even in Tokyo. I mean, what what's your uh, maximum budget? You said we said not ten million or not a um, not a hundred million, but what's your maximum? Yeah, so that would also really depend on the on the bank as well, because uh, that's gonna that's not gonna be a cash uh, purchase for that. So well, I mean. <laughs> Considering the fact that you're going to be buying something that's already more than 50 million, I would guess, um, it might be a good idea to set up a company. Yeah. And then even if you don't have residency, um, you could get a loan uh, from uh, Shinsei Investment and Finance. And that, but the, the terms wouldn't be as good as a native Japanese loan. So you're looking at somewhere between 3 to 4% interest. And uh, sixty to seventy percent LTV, so you will need to put in thirty to forty percent in cash. Yeah. So if that's doable for you, you don't have to wait for residency. They will give you a loan. Well, I should get the residency in two months. So. Okay, well, that that's not an issue. But did your bank actually tell you that they lend for a commercial uh, mixed property? I have uh, this Eon Bank. Uh, could be a possibility for that. Okay. But uh, it's uh, it's only eighty percent uh, loan to value. 
So I still have to put uh, 2% down payment. It's not a bad thing, man. It's not good to be 100% leveraged, I'd say. Uh, well, depends what. <laughs> I mean, no, I mean, things things go downhill. You're suddenly going to be uh, putting sure. up. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, that's, that's always a possibility here. Mm. You're right. Uh, well, as well as well, but... Uh, okay, well, I didn't know about the Shinsei on... Uh, but, mm, okay. But what, what's Eon um, interest rates like? The uh, last time I asked them for that, it was around 2.5. Well, that, that's not that much worse, uh, that, that much better than uh, Shinsei. That's only about... Shinsei will go 3, 3.5%. Mm-hmm. So it's not a disaster. Okay, so Eon and Eon said that um, Eon said that um, mixed purpose is okay. They don't they don't mind shops and offices and so forth. Uh, I only asked them uh, a general question about uh, about building with mixed use, but I haven't given them uh, too many details. So it's just a pretty uh, pretty pretty okay discussion. There is no I, I, I do not have yet as you know since I haven't given them the property uh, the the official um, loan template. But they're open to it. They're open to it. Yeah. Okay, that that's great to hear. Okay. Using using some connections. <laughs> ah, okay. So it's not something you can just walk off the street and get. Mm, probably not. <laughs> you should uh, you should make a business of that one. I know a lot of people that will go for that. <laughs> that's a possibility. All right, so on to your next favorite episode, which again is one of my favorites as well. And this is an interview I've had with Daphne Thompson, uh, whom you may have heard recently again on some of our Clubhouse Japan Real Estate Room conversations. Daphne is originally from South Africa. She's an experienced property investor herself, and she's a really fun person to talk to. And we talk about, well, lots and lots of stuff, but in this segment that you're going to be hearing, we focus on the current COVID situation and how it's affected various segments in the market as well as on the new, or now not so new, short-term stay legislation, a.k.a. Airbnb. So a really fun, in-depth conversation, which I hope you will enjoy. So which property sectors do you think is currently thriving in, in the COVID situation? The properties that are most attractive, purchase price-wise, that are mm-hmm. most attractive now are um, ex-hospitality properties. So people who have been running uh, little Airbnb operations and suddenly lost all of their bookings for like two years ahead. Um, retail properties, commercial properties, because a lot of businesses have had to uh, scale down or even close. Um, so people who own these kinds of properties um, kind of fire selling them now. Um, little hotels, uh, yokans, like little inns in the countryside, that sort of thing. Um, and generally, like I was saying, the market's a bit softer now, so it's easier to negotiate prices for um, for properties than it was five or six months ago. So would you say it's a buyer's market now? Oh, definitely buyer's market now, yeah. All right, so for all of our investors out there, this is the time that you, you should try and, and find a, a good deal. Our clients have been having a field day yeah, in the last three, four months. That is awesome. So you, you mentioned the, the hospitality industry. Japan has a very unique way, like everything else they, they do, but a very unique yeah. way of handling Airbnb. How does that work? Um, it used to be a bit of a gray area until uh, mid, mid last year, or is it mid 2018 already, when they put in some new legislation? 
Um, and from that point onwards, they changed a few things. So first of all, they made you jump through a lot more hoops if you want to actually um, comply and have a license to do it properly. And so you they have, have to have a license to do that? Yeah, well, you have to register with City Hall and let them know that you're running an Airbnb. And if you want to rent it out for more than half the year, um, you do need to apply for an actual hotel license. Um, which wow. is, is not, that, not that complicated of a process in Japan, but it obviously brings in a, a lot more compliance issues that you might not have had to think about before. So fire and safety and hygiene, and you need to have a um, person available on call within a certain distance from the property 24-7, that kind of thing. Um, so it, it's become a bit more difficult. And one of the, um, one of the most stringent things that they've done is that they've now given um, owner co-op, so let's say units in a co-owned block or each unit is owned by a different owner. Um, so they gave the owners co-op and the building management company the right to decide uh, that they're not going to allow Airbnb or th they don't call it Airbnb, they call it Minpaku, which is short-term rental. So basically anything that's done without a lease, like just letting guests in and out kind of thing. Um, and for periods of less than one month. So for that, you need approval from building management or from the owner's co-op. And I'd say about 99% of them are not allowing that. Now, would you recommend Airbnb as an investment strategy here? Uh, maybe not as a unit, but if you have a full block, would, would that then be better? Yeah, so if you own the entire structure, yes, that's definitely a lot more viable. Um, but still, there's compliance. So if, if, you say, if, say, you own a building that's only got, say, four units in it, so you really have to factor in the cost of compliance. So to make sure that the building um, satisfies the uh, MINPAC with the short-term stay legislation and has all the um, uh, fire and safety and hygiene and, and regular cleaning and so forth that comes with that. And the cost of, um, I mean, if you're living in one of the units and you're there, that's okay. But if you're not, if you're a remote investor, then you, wanna, you need to have somebody within a certain distance of the property that's available to take calls. Um, so you just need to factor all of that in and see if it's worth your time. And the other thing is that it, it's a lot more hands-on, obviously, than just being a, a long-term lease landlord. Right? Mm. So is you need to um, take care of check-ins and check-outs and problems and people that pay and don't pay and take bookings and constantly check your occupancy rates and see if you're profitable or not. So it's, um, it's a full-on job. So on the one side, it's nice job creation. And the other side, yeah. is a little bit of a headache. Yeah, but I mean, it can, when it goes well, it can more than double the rental income you'd get from a normal long-term lease. So it's worth it if you've got the time and the bandwidth to deal with it. All right. Is there um, a certain period of time that, uh, so if you've got the hotel lease or the hotel license, the hospitality license, can you lease it all year round? Can you do Airbnb yes. all year round? So if yes. you don't, then it's only a certain amount of time per year. Under that time frame. So what people often do is they rent it out uh, Minpaku Airbnb for half the year. And then the, the other half of the year, they put in people with normal leases for something like, say, monthly rentals. So somebody rents the place for a month or two months or six months. And then they, they don't fall under that legislation. And that's okay. That's considered a normal lease for the rest of the year. All right, cool. So this is also Airbnb is a solid strategy with different factors that you need to keep in mind. Yes, it's not as easy as, um, say, Europe, Australia, a lot of other places. Um, you got a place, you just rent it out, you book people in and out, and you make sure, I mean, there might be 
more or less satisfied with what you provided, but you don't have to go through any um, legal compliance issues unless anything happens, obviously, but otherwise. Yeah. Um, but yeah. here it's not like that. So here, like everything Japanese, at least in the last year and a half or so, you do have to uh, make sure that you're doing everything by the book. Um, native Japanese who don't really care much about visas and stuff, a lot of them still operate it in a gray sort of area. Um, but for foreigners, it's a risk because if you if you break the law, they could officially kick you out of the country. So, of course, there's been sure. a few uh, Brits in that that have actually gone to jail for a couple of weeks in Tokyo. I think when they uh, ran a follow that one. Really? Yeah. Wow. Because uh, one of our investment strategies is Airbnb. So one of our, our properties, it's a full-on family house in South Africa, and they yeah. we just literally listed, put the price. Airbnb takes their fee, and that's that. If there's anything maintenance that needs to be done, it's like they just contact us on WhatsApp and it, it's sorted or through Airbnb, but there's none of the, the additional um, hands-on or additional licensing. What is the reason for that here in Japan? That really depends on who you ask. Um, the official story, is, um, official story is that it's uh, to regulate the industry, to make it less risky and make sure that people don't have accidents and that everyone's registered and, uh, and uh, accountable for whatever they do with the property. Um, I would say it's probably a mix of um, A, um, the hotel lobby is pretty powerful in Japan and they've exerted some serious... Um, influence to make sure that the people who come to stay here because especially with the olympics that was coming up and the rugby world mm. cup before that there was a lot of need for uh, budget uh, budget accommodation and the uh, airbnb uh, really flourished here in the two years leading into that and i think the hotel lobby just got a bit freaked out by that so they did what they could through their lobbyists and the other thing is that um Japanese people can be quite foreigner shy, to put it gently. And um, when they see foreigners running around the building, um, you know, obviously not all guests know exactly what to do with the rubbish, um, what goes out and what day and what color bag, and they speak foreign language in the hall, and they tend to be a bit louder than your average Japanese tenant. Um, and they, they just don't like that. It's, yeah. um, it's a bit racist, but it's no different to any other place in the world. I mean, you look at uh, tourist uh, locations like um, Venice and Italy or New York or a lot of other places. There are a lot of people complaining about the same sort of things, except they don't have the government backing. And here it's very easy for people to complain enough for the uh, local city hall to then complain to, um, to the mayor's office. And then the mayor's office complains. Enough mayors complain to uh, the national government and then a new legislation just comes in. All right, so on to your next favorite episode. And this one again is um, another interview that I've done, this time with Ujwal Villagapudi from the US. And he's the host of a great little podcast named The Global Uj, which focuses on global entrepreneurship and the people founding and running these global companies all across the world. Now, he's actually in real estate himself, commercial real estate to be exact. And he wanted to know all about how we work here at NTI. So what kinds of clients do we serve? Where do they come from? And how we can help them invest in and manage their properties remotely. So we talk about structuring investment portfolios, recommending various locations all around the country, um, financing options, accessibility to foreign investors, and much, much more. So here's a small part of that conversation. And again, you can tune into the full conversation, uh, which is over an hour long, by checking out the show notes, uh, which we'll have a link to, uh, to that episode as well.
The thing is with Japan, like I said, so Tokyo, Osaka, Fukuoka, maybe Kyoto would have a few professionals that you can work with, but the further you get from those major city centers, the less and less um, local companies would be able to wrap their head around the concept of dealing with foreigners. Um, even if you do speak, read and write the language, just the fact that your name is foreign, that you're clearly not going to be in the vicinity of the property, they can't um, give you a call or send you a fax, which is still a big thing here in Japan for some reason, um, just turns them off the idea. So they tend to not even return emails or phone calls, they just don't know what to do when a foreigner contacts them. So I guess if you're purchasing one or two properties and it's only going to be in a major city, you could potentially get around uh, working directly with companies on the ground. But if you're looking at a more diverse portfolio, a few socioeconomic profiles, a few locations around the country, or if you're looking for a holiday home in the countryside, um, there just there isn't the infrastructure here to help foreigners do that. So that's when they contact us. And so which part of Japan do you tend to focus on? Uh, where are you guys based out of and do you like a specific market or do you work in a certain zone or is it uh, really throughout the country? Um, Business-wise, we're nationwide. We're based in uh, Fukuoka in southwestern Japan, which is sort of like the biggest uh, metropolitan center uh, closer to Southeast Asia. So uh, Taiwan, Korea, some parts of China are actually closer to us than Tokyo is. Um, and we live here because, I mean, we started visiting here when we opened the business about nine years ago simply because at that point in time, that's, when the, that's where the best deals were. And now that's sort of shifted to other locations, again, depending on investor criteria, but we really love the place, so we just stuck around personally. Um, but we work nationwide. We wouldn't, I mean, we would re recommend to steer away from places that are suffering from population decline or have only got a single industry um, that might be a bit more difficult for resale and tenanting purposes down the track. Um, but otherwise, it's up to the investor, so depending on where they come from, what their profile is, what exactly they're looking for in their portfolio, and what other investments they already have, then we would recommend uh, particular cities or towns. So if they're looking more for yield, we'd probably stay away from the major cities, go to prefectural capitals or satellite cities up to an hour away from a major city. Um, if they're happy with lower yields and they really want the most safe and stable and potential growth-oriented property, then we would probably uh, recommend a major city like Tokyo, Osaka, Fukuoka, Nagoya, Kyoto, um, and so forth. So it really, I mean, we, we don't dictate, we just make recommendations. So it's up to the investor. We try to get an understanding of what the rest of the portfolio uh, looks like, whether it's real estate or not real estate, in which countries they are, what sort of yield, uh, as opposed to a capital growth potential they've got with their other investments. And then we try to complement that uh, with whatever they can, we can get for them here. Hmm. That's great. And so... Can we walk through uh, how a typical buyer would come to you guys from the initial outreach all the way through setting up potentially a close and actually the management? Um, let's say we take my, myself, for example. Uh, I do have a real estate background within the U.S. I've worked primarily in commercial real estate investments, and I'm interested in investing globally. So I say, Ziv, I would like to invest in Japan. I have no clue about the market and no idea where to start. Uh, I, I'm, I'm assuming, you know, a, a lot of people that are my peers would that have any interest to invest outside of the U.S. would truly not know um, 
a particular market very well, unless they really live there or have uh, other business interests. So for example, for me, that would be a, uh, the Japanese market. I've never visited. I don't know very much about it, but let's say I have interest in investing. Where would you steer me? I mean, how would you um, really guide me through the process uh, when I say I do want yield? Uh, can you tell me what that range would really look like? Uh, two, I would want a few properties that are diversified. So instead of going to purchase one asset, I would want some sort of diversification in getting a group or getting multiple, like maybe a portfolio together. So how would uh, you be able to guide someone like that? Well, the first step would be to understand um, your budget and what yield actually means for you. So obviously, if your budget is just 100K, for example, there's a limit to the diversity that we can offer. So you'd be limited to mainly condo units or maybe a condo unit in the house. Um, and you would be limited in your selection of locations as well. Um, so. I mean, we often get approached by people who only have, say, uh, 30, 40K to invest. And there are properties in Japan that you can get that would generate rental income at 30, 40,000. But they're not going to be in Tokyo. They're not going to be in Osaka. Uh, they're not going to be in Yokohama, Kawasaki, that sort of place. They're going to be in maybe Fukuoka or Nagoya, but more on the outer uh, suburbs, not very central. Um, so in that case, we would probably steer you towards prefectural capitals, and we would let you know that the maximum net pre-tax yield that you'll be able to get uh, would be 8 or 9%, um, but you wouldn't have very good potential growth. If your budget is bigger, then we can start talking about diversity, and then we can say, okay, well, maybe make 80% of your budget a sort of safe and stable uh, blue-chip kind of property in a big central location, and then be a bit more adventurous with the remaining budget in another location, maybe get your rental income potentially higher, um, but you'll be um, losing out a little bit on the uh, regrowth potential and so forth. So we would first try to get an idea of uh, what you can budget for, and then based on that, we'll tell you what's achievable or not achievable within that budget. And it depends on where you're coming from, too. I mean, you're coming from the USA um, and commercial property, so I'm guessing it's a relatively high-yield environment compared to, say, a uh, customer who comes from Singapore or Australia where if you get 3 4%, that's usually as high as it's going to go. So for those kind of customers, maybe 5 6% is already acceptable. It's higher than what they can get in their own backyard. But if you're coming from the USA or certain countries in Europe, um, you might not be satisfied with anything less than 7 8%, in which case we direct you in a, in a right. different location. Okay. And so let's say um, I, I do have a certain budget in mind. I come to you guys. We find... Uh, a, a few different properties or a few different locations. How does financing work in Japan, especially for a foreign investor? Um, well, until about two years ago, that wasn't even an option um, for non-residents. Oh. Um, now there are a few options open. There are companies in Japan that will lend to non-residents if they set up a Japanese company for the purpose of servicing the loan. Um, but then, of course, companies come with an annual upkeep cost, so you have to make sure that your um, annual income justifies the two or 3000 that will cost you in accounting and bookkeeping and corporate tax and so forth a year. 
Um, and then there's at least one more company that I'm aware of which services um, Hong Kong or Taiwanese or Chinese residents and they don't necessitate setting up a company in Japan. There's another one in Singapore that also services non-residents but only for individual condos so you wouldn't be able to use them to purchase a building. And the terms are quite similar for all of them. So there are something between 60 to 70% LTV and somewhere between 3 to 4% annual interest. Oh, wow. Okay. But their criteria is pretty strict. So you can't, you can only purchase in, um, well, pre-COVID it was central Tokyo, central Osaka, central Fukuoka. These days it's mostly just Tokyo, Yokohama maybe. Um, hopefully that will ease up again, but that really limits your selection and they also would not allow you to be creative with tenanting. So they appoint their own designated property manager who will only let you lease out to standard long-term Japanese tenants, um, which obviously reduces your potential uh, yield because you can't do any short-term rentals, Airbnb, uh, commercial rentals, anything of that sort. It has to be strictly residential and strictly long-term leases. Wow, that's yeah, that is really interesting. Uh, so, would you say most of your buyers are cash buyers that are oh, looking to almost all of them? Yeah, um, we now have for the first time in in nine years, we now have a handful of of people who've actually uh, purchasing with loans. Uh, but yeah, ninety nine percent of them are cash buyers. Okay, and you mentioned some of the different yields and different rates in other countries. How would uh, I mean, based on based on that, I'm I'm assuming you have less traffic from American American buyers, let's say, especially coming from the commercial world. Not do recently. You, do you see that? No, Not we had um, when we started out, it was like that. So post GFC, um, America had a plethora of good deals. People could find um, distressed properties, high yielding properties, in a lot of space, a lot of spaces around the country. Um, as things improved in the U.S. since 2015 or 16 or so, we started seeing a lot more traffic coming in from the U.S., Canada as well, um, which wasn't the case in previous years. I'm guessing this is because the market sort of dried up as far as high yields go. Um, so they did start looking at overseas properties. And these days, I think maybe 30% of our clientele is North American. Um, with the rest of them, about half of them are still Australia and Singapore because those are places that have always been uh, quite unaffordable and quite low on the yield. So they've always been internationally savvy and looking for opportunities abroad. And the rest are sort of a um, bit of European, some Asian, Thailand, Malaysia, um, New Zealand, a few other countries. But more, more and more U.S. and Canada these days, actually. Okay. And, and so when you find, let's say, depending on that certain buyer's profile and their criteria, if you, if they have such a unique criteria and profile, how are you able to find the resources to be able to actually make that transaction happen? Let's say um, you're outside of your network or the major cities that you've formerly worked in. Are you having to find a brand new agent in the new city, uh, property management company, uh, the title company, I mean, all those folks from end-to-end, -end, those vendors, uh, is that a brand-new search and effort for your team as well? 
Yeah, but this is what we do on a regular basis. So we would, um, obviously, if we worked with a particular agent in the past, then they'll be sending us their listings before they actually hit the MLS websites um, so we can get our foot in the door quicker. And some of them are national companies. So if we tell uh, a national Japanese real estate uh, agency that we're looking for properties in this and that particular location, then they would be able to uh, contact a local office, maybe not in that city, but in a nearby city who handles that area and help us find listings. And if we can't get it through our um, already established channels, then we just go online like everybody else does. And once we've done one or two deals with a particular agent, once we've placed one or two tenants with a particular property manager, then we've got that city covered. Um, we will try to expand our network just so that we have an alternative in case for some reason they can't serve us or they don't serve us as well as they used to. Um, but depending on the city, I mean, the bigger cities would have more more alternatives. In some cities, there's only one or two uh, agents that we can work with. So we work with what we have. So that was our conversation with Ujwal Velagapudi of the Global Uj podcast. Again, a really good podcast with some great guests being interviewed on a regular basis. Highly recommend you check it out. Now for our next conversation, and we're almost done now, only two or three segments to go. Um, this one's a chat that we had with a Japanese resident, originally from the USA, who's planning to purchase a home to live in, in Tokyo. And we were discussing everything to do with property due diligence for owners, occupiers, so purchase costs, insurance, and deductibles in case of insurance claims, zoning regulations, and a whole lot more. And this segment of the conversation focuses mainly on insurance and also on the difference between official tax evaluations and market price. Now, many of our listeners, again, have found this episode quite interesting based on download numbers. So here's that portion of the conversation again for you. So I have a couple of questions. So the fire insurance, is that included in the purchase cost? Um, the insurance is something that we take into account on the um, upkeep or management, not for purchase costs. Okay. It is cheaper. So like it is cheaper if you purchase it five years in advance. So then it would be an expense that you would be paying on purchase. But then every five years you have to pay it again. So we factor it in under management. Oh, I see. Okay, because I was looking at some other YouTube videos and they actually calculated the fire insurance into the purchase cost, and it was like two hundred and fifty thousand yen. And I and I was wondering if that. I, I was thinking, wow, is that for the you know, like one year, two years. Um, so I was wondering if that's, if I, yeah, I didn't see the insurance in your example, but I, I have seen insurance calculated into the purchase cost in other examples on YouTube. So well, I mean, factoring it into the purchase cost is a little bit misleading because it's not an expense that is just a one-off. You do have to renew it every five years. Um, let me, I'll just have a quick look at something similar that we've helped somebody purchase recently, and I'll tell you what the insurance, I think, um, from memory, I think that's probably a five-year uh, policy, but just give me a split sec. I'll just quickly have a look. I mean, if I'm just using that, uh, that example that I, that I told you about, 250,000 uh, yen, and if if, in fact, it is a five-year policy, that means the monthly bill would be like 40, about $42 or like 4,100 yen. Does that kind of sound correct? Uh, monthly? Yeah. Um, if you use 
250,000 over 60 months. Yes, I think I think that's about right, but I'm just I'm really trying to open this Excel. Oh, here it comes. Hang on, hang on. He's almost with us. Okay, so I'm looking at a structure that is um 125 meters in size so slightly larger than yours yours was 91 from memory yes that's right and he's paying for insurance he's paying 8600 a month so yes i think the four four to five thousand sounds reasonable for your size uh, structure okay so that's most likely they factored in five years of fire insurance um, but again, I wouldn't count it as a purchase cost because um, it's something that you'll have to pay again and again whenever it expires. Yeah, okay, that sounds good. So the, that's, that's fire. Earthquake insurance is a different insurance. Right? No, no, that's included. Oh, that's included? Yeah, so fire, fire, earthquake, and other natural disasters are usually all the single policy. Okay. Um, it also covers tsunami to the extent that tsunamis are usually caused by earthquakes, so they fall under the earthquake damages. Um, the coverage is never 100%, though, so you might be looking at something like 60%, 70%. Um, again, it, it varies depending on the official evaluation, but you're not looking at 100% coverage in most cases. Bringing it up to 100% or close to it would usually cost a lot more. Uh-huh. So yeah. the, the frame of thinking is that by the time anything happens, you'd hopefully have already gotten some value out of the property by then. I see. Um are there any deductibles on these insurance policies? Um, they're all they're all deductible. All of your purchase costs are deductible. Oh, I'm sorry. I mean, like you know, like in America, on certain incidences, um, I would have to pay. Like I for, I don't have it in front of me, but like I um, I, I think it's I think it's hurricane maybe. Um, hurricane, I'd have to pay the first three thousand dollars, and then after I pay that first three thousand dollars. Then the insurance will kick in. That's the deductible. Oh, you mean your excess? Okay. Yes, yes. That um, that that Is applies it? to these policies as well. It depends again. Oh, okay. Depends again on the individual policy and the property. But there's always a a certain amount that you'll have to pay out of pocket. Yes, but it's usually going to be minute compared to the uh, coverage. Okay. Yeah, okay. I got. Yeah. Was. Well, uh, yeah. Like I, I don't know if three three thousand dollars is minute compared to my coverage. But I haven't used it yet, so I'm not really. Sure. But yeah, I know they do have deductibles in America, um, so they do, so it's the same in Japan. So, um, Tim, I wanted to ask you, since you were talking about, like, a lot of these things are, like, dependent on the valuation. I heard that that came up in our conversation a lot. So, um, with the valuation, I know, um, I believe the city ward offices determine that valuation. Correct. When they issue your property tax statement every year, then they'll base the property tax on what they believe the valuation is. And that'll be that'll appear in the statement. Yeah. So, like for example, in America, um, you can go online and you can go to any county. Like my my property is in a county. Um, I can go to that county um, website and I can look up. You know, I can punch in the address, and it, it's it's public record for all the those properties in the county to to show. How much um, the tax, the property taxes were uh, in 2019, 18? I don't know how far back it goes, but you can see it. That's public information. Is that the same in Japan? 
Um, it is public information, but it's not as easily accessible. Japan being Japan, a lot of it is not online still. And Tok Tokyo might be a bit different. I, I think there are some resources in Tokyo that you can access online. But in any case, you can always just um, stroll over to the local ward office and ask to uh, receive those uh, historical statements. They're, they're always available. Okay. So you can't get... Yeah, because... Yeah, I was... You know, because that seems to be like the mystery key. Because I hear that in a lot of other videos, they're like, oh, it all depends on the valuation. And I just thought to myself, well, the, the valuations in America, you can see them very easily. That's so even before you purchase, you can go online. Even if I um, like I'm thinking of buying something in Washington, uh, America in Washington State in Clark County. And if you go to the Clark County website, you can punch in the address. All the information comes up. It shows the the last purchase price and so on and so forth. So, um, I was I was wondering if you know if that. But thank you for responding to that. I mean, it's not uh, readily available online yet. But if I go to the office, so yeah. So if I went to the that uh, the county office and then I asked them, you know, like to see the property, um, the property tax for 2008, 2019, I could get that information. You could, but if you're looking at a particular property, the easiest route would be to just ask the uh, seller and the uh, realtor to provide the last statements. Oh, okay. Yeah, because that would that would give me because I I heard on some um, podcasts or some YouTube videos that the um, you know it's the the sales price and the actual actual um, price that they use to calculate the property taxes can be really. Uh, can be a huge difference. Correct. Have you seen that in the past? Yes, that's that's very correct. It's usually um, they reevaluate every few years and then they run averages. So the closer the closer you are to the last um, calculation, the more accurate it would be. But uh -huh. there's always at least a slight difference, and particularly in areas which have gone up or down in value, but the government valuations haven't quite caught up with market price yet, and okay. um, then you could see some very big differences. But in general, does is it actually so? Is the property calculation for the property taxes lower than the sales price, or or higher? Depends on what's happened in the area. So we've seen, for example, uh, Sapporo, for example, took a hit after the uh, 2011 uh, and the Fukushima thing, uh -huh. and there we saw quite high property tax statements and quite high evaluations because um, the market took a hit, but the government haven't updated yet. Okay. And in other places. Um, let's say Fukuoka, which is sort of a rising star, it was the other way around. So the mark, the official evil haven't quite caught up with market prices, which were shooting up. I see. So it really depends on the location. In Tokyo specifically, they're probably more, they probably got their finger on the pulse a little bit more. So the difference would be smaller, but it would definitely exist always. Yes. I got it. So, I, you know, I know, I know we're on 30 minutes, so I just want to, um, so, say, say, for example, I go through the purchase, and then, you know, the purchase came out to 13% um, of the sales price. Then, you know, I, per, I did the realtor, I paid the realtor's fee, the legal, and all the registration things. Um, I hired you guys, for example, to uh, help me with the legal documentation. So, once all of that is clear, I get the keys, uh, the title, and the deed to the property is in my hand. So, after that... You know, like, so the monthly, of course, I'll have the mortgage fee, but what other fees um, will come on every month? Like, so the, the property tax, obviously, that, you know, that would be calculated later. And either it's, like, I pay my property taxes in America twice a year. So I don't know how they're going to calculate that, but I'm sure that'll, that'll be a, a cost that'll be coming up 
uh, either monthly, uh, annually, or semi-annually. Well, you, they give you a statement which you can pay uh, in one bulk payment, or you can do it quarterly. It's up to you. Okay. So besides the, the, the loan and the property tax, what are the what are, uh, like other reoccurring costs that, that will come up every month? Like, Is there anything else that you can think of besides the property tax and the loan? Not if you own the entire structure, no. The only thing would be maintenance, which again, if you're buying new for the first 10 years, there'd be very little of that. Yeah. And depending on whether, uh, I don't know if, um, I mean, the one you sent to me only has a little um, garage parking concrete slab, but if you've got obviously any um, lawn or trees or anything, there might be a bit of gardening. Um, but otherwise, no, just normal living expenses, you know, internet, utilities, that sort of thing. You know, so a lot of I see a lot of these properties that are like either they're being torn down and rebuilt, um, sometimes in you know like next to older homes. Are there any like red flags or anything that you would say be cautious about? Like if you know, like your your house is brand new and the the the, the adjacent lots are not new or the uh, the let, you know, the right, the right side, you have a small little company and the left side, you have like a, another a property owner. Are there any kind of red flags that I know there's, uh, there needs to be a certain distance from your, from, I forgot, zeros, uh, the name, but there, there needs to be a certain amount of meters between you and the road. Um, well, that's only an issue if you buy secondhand, because then if you buy something that's 20 or 30 years old, then, then zoning uh, regulations might have changed since build. But if you're buying something new, that's obviously been built um, based oh, on, on current regulations. So that's not going to be an issue. Um, when you rebuild down the track, um, if regulations have changed, then you might need to leave the base intact and re reconstruct on top of the existing concrete base, which would make it a renovation rather than a rebuild. And then you wouldn't necessarily have to comply with new building regulations. Um, but I mean, I don't think they're going to change hugely in the big cities. They have changed a bit in the last 20, 30 years. But these days, if the property was built um, in the last, say, five or six years, then that's not going to be an issue at all, no. All right, so we're almost done now. Uh, this next to last conversation that you've also downloaded hundreds of times and one that we've had with a couple from the US again. And they have a son living here in Japan and are interested in potentially getting a business manager visa granted to them based on their future property investments here in Japan. So we had a short chat on that topic, um, mainly what sort of investment capital you'd need to put in, what level of income you'd need to generate to qualify for these visas, and also what property profiles would satisfy the requirements for them. So Japan doesn't have straightforward investment visas like um, many other countries do, but it is possible to set up a property management or asset management company that could potentially help non-resident investors get a business visa. So this conversation is all about business visas, the types of properties which one would need to focus on buying and managing to qualify for them, and the costs and processes involved. Hope you enjoy it. Uh, we're not connected to the U.S. anymore. We've uh, Part of our journey, we detached from all unnecessary possessions. We were minimalists. Yeah. And so we can now we restructure our lives so we can go anywhere we want to go. And uh, we want to try living some other lifestyle, some other places yep. and some other economies and, and Japan is at the top of Asia is at the top of Malaysia we like South Korea we want to explore Malaysia but Japan because of our family being there 
Yes. Well, I don't know what you have, what advice you have for that, or what services you have for that. Um, well, let's maybe tackle that visa thing uh, first, because that would also dictate the sort of investments that you'd be looking at generally. Um, and uh, we can give you general advice, but I think our strength is probably in just connecting you to the right professionals and then um, facilitating the connection so that they can help you more efficiently than we can. So we're not accountants, we're not immigration lawyers, but and we're not um, property or company setup lawyers, but we can definitely... Um, organize the team and work with them on your behalf. So, uh, again, bearing in mind that I'm not an immigration lawyer, the general uh, gist of things seems to be that you can get a business manager visa if you set up a business that deals directly with real estate um, management, portfolio management, uh, building maintenance, building management, that sort of thing. Um, it's not going to be strictly by the virtue of owning an investment. So if you own a large portfolio, even of 30 or 50 doors, um, but they're all individual units in different locations or even a few in the same building, that's not going to justify a um, real estate management company setup. So you do have to own um, multifamily structures, an actual building or two or three. Um, and whether it's one or two or three would depend on the income that they generate. So to qualify for a business visa, um, from memory, last time I checked with an immigration lawyer, you were supposed to net about uh, two and a half million yen per annum. So about $23,000. And then if you've got other dependents, um, then each of those dependents would, um, would double or triple the amount of income that you'd need to generate. So for you and Kim, you'd need about five million. And then the business has to maintain that steady level of income over time. So it's uh, all good and well to uh, apply for the visa claiming that you're going to be made, but then every year they're going to check that you're actually netting that. And normally when you purchase an investment property, you you would want to be claiming the purchase costs and carrying them forward. For individuals, you can do that for three years. For companies, you can do that for five years. But you'd have to strike a balance, and that's where your accountant and your immigration lawyer would have to communicate with each other. You'd have to strike a balance that guarantees that the net income after you've claimed everything that you want to claim is uh, sufficient to maintain your visa. So there's a bit of a balancing act there. On the one hand, you want to claim as much as possible tax-wise, but on the other hand, you want to be making enough net income so that you keep qualifying for the visa and moving forward. And, of course, the other thing is that you have to make sure that the property that you're purchasing generates enough income for that purpose. So if you're, if you're purchasing, say, a four- or six-unit uh, multifamily building, it might be, if we put all the deductions and claims aside, and let's say we're not doing any of that, it might be generating, say, 2500 bucks a month or $3,000 a month. Um, that might qualify you for the one visa, but probably not for both of them. So you'd probably want to look at having two of these buildings. Okay. And at the moment, um, buildings in good locations, especially around Tokyo, Osaka, Yokohama, Kobe, um, and the satellite cities around there, and Nagoya as well, they have taken a hit with Corona. So there are uh, deals that are more attractive than we've seen, say, in the past four or five years. But still, the entry level for a multifamily building um, is probably not going to be lower than 30 million or 35 million yen. Oh, okay. 
Um, so if you're looking at a cash investment, and we can discuss potential financing um, a little bit later, but if you're looking at a cash investment, you're looking at something like $600,000 to buy two of those buildings that would potentially satisfy two visa requirements. So that, that's a bit of a different picture from the uh, properties that you have been looking at that we've been forwarding to you because these are all individual units under 100K, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that, it, that, those are very helpful to see, you know, what the building is, you know, uh, what, an apartment, the size of the apartment. Uh, looking at the, the Goya one and looking at the cash flow, monthly yeah. cash flow, and all the, you know, the, the monthly fees and so forth. Right. So there, the fee structure would be different for buying a whole building, I would imagine, or would it just be per unit roughly the same? The, the fee structure, as in our fees, you mean? The monthly, the monthly cost of, of running a whole building. Well, both the purchase costs and the monthly costs tend to decrease um, percentage-wise as the uh, asset value and the income gets higher. So with us, for example, uh, we'd be charging 2%. The property managers usually charge 4 or 5%. Um, purchase costs for individual units tend to hover around somewhere. This is all assuming that you're using our services, not directly with the Realtor. So usually purchase costs would be hovering for individual units at somewhere between 17 to 18%. We like to estimate a worst case scenario of 20%. Yeah, so that. Yeah, but with buildings, um, it could drop down to potentially 15, 13, 10, or 11 percent. The, the bigger and more expensive the building is, the less it's going to cost percentage wise. Yeah. Um, and the management costs, um, again, to a point, I mean, our fees are slightly lower um, for bigger properties. Property managers tend to charge about the same, it might be 1 percent lower on the management cost. Um, insurance is actually slightly higher if you own the entire structure because you need structural insurance as well, not just the interior. But insurance is usually a minute expense in Japan. Um, just trying to think. I guess it, it seems like a way to really uh, streamline the purchase cost. You know, if I buy, if I buy four separate units somewhere, uh, closing those closing costs, purchase costs for each one of those units versus buying a single a whole building, a four to six unit building. There's one time transaction cost. Seems like there has to be a savings there. The transaction cost is slightly lower, but it's mainly a case of um, the uh, purchase tax and the legal uh, registration tax being a factor of the um, official evaluation of the property price. And that does tend to be um, lower percentage-wise for bigger and more expensive properties. So we're looking at a difference of, um, for larger buildings, it's usually somewhere between 1% to 3%, whereas for individual units, it usually ends up being something like 4 or 5%. And for our last segment in this compilation, drum roll. This one was actually our last episode in 2020 as well. And surprisingly enough, or at least surprising for me, because it was actually a bit more negative in tone compared with everything that we usually talk about, it was also one of your favorite episodes of the year. And this is the one in which we speak about what you can expect from us as proxies, buyer advocates, and portfolio managers, but perhaps more importantly, what you shouldn't be expecting from us. 
And this remains a really important topic to discuss because with the market and business environment here in Japan being, uh, in many cases, vastly different from what our clients may be used to, we often get asked if we handle everything on their behalf. And while the answer is yes, we definitely can and do, this doesn't mean that we can do it all on our own and for the same fixed price. So some services are performed, in fact, most services are performed by third parties, and most of them cost money, as they would if you were to order them from those third parties directly on your own. So here's a segment from our final episode of 2020, which is really all about what we cannot, should not, or will not do on behalf of our clients. So it's really important when a company starts a relationship with a new client for both sides to be aware of what exactly is included in the services that are going to be provided. And equally important, both sides need to be clear on what's not included. Simply because if that's not laid out and clear from the get-go, it can lead to disappointments or even disputes down the track. And we, like most professional companies, prefer our clients well-informed, well in advance of hiring our services to avoid this exact sort of situation. And also to let the client know what to expect from us and at what price. And also what, if anything, they'll need to hire other professionals for or pay separate fees for. So you already know what we are. We're buyers, agents, proxies. But here's what we're not. So we're not realtors and we're not property managers. We work with third parties for both of these services. And the advantage is that this gives us the ability to be completely interest-free as far as representing our clients goes. So we have no vested interest in any particular properties, any particular areas for you to buy in, and no vested interest in working with any particular tenant bases, with any particular renovation or repair companies, which many property managers do. We are 100% on the buyer or seller side, depending on who it is that we've been hired to represent. And if we happen to represent both, which is sometimes the case when, for example, one of our clients wants to sell a property and another one of our clients wants to buy it, and in those cases, we won't even have to work with a realtor, and that does save a few bucks. So the buyer and seller would both be our clients, and they can expect the same level of professional advice and services to be facilitated on both their behalves. And our clients who sell property know uh, very well if we believe that a property that they're selling is not really an attractive deal anymore, and this can happen for any number of reasons, because building management has gone downhill or building fees have gone up. A particular area might be less attractive than it was when they purchased, or the property has gotten too old since it was purchased, so it doesn't really generate the same stable and reliable income it used to. We'll immediately let them know that we won't be recommending that particular property to any of our clients. So we're still more than happy to help them sell it, but it'll be on the open market using a realtor. And it'll most likely be sold to a local Japanese buyer or a local property company who might be interested in it um, for various other reasons, aside from the straightforward investment vehicle value. We are also not accountants. So we can be your bookkeepers for all matters related to your property portfolio, income and expenses, but not anything else. And if you don't live in Japan and you don't have a bank account here, will most likely have to take care of your income collections and expenses payments for you. And that is included in our monthly charges which means that we'll also provide you with an annual statement and we'll send funds back to you, of course, at your request. And we'll even advise on exchange rates, depending on which country and which currency you'll be withdrawing your funds into. But we're not accountants. And that means that aside from some general guidelines as to tax brackets and individual versus company ownership of properties, uh, depreciation considerations and so forth, we would always advise that you consult with an accountant based on your own private circumstances. And for that same reason, because we're not accountants, we also can't file your tax return statements for you. 
neither here in Japan and, of course, not in any other country. So you will need an accountant for that as well if you don't do it yourself and if you're over the reporting threshold. And accountants obviously charge for their services uh, as they normally do for consultations. What else are we not? We're not property lawyers. We're not immigration lawyers. We're not solicitors. We can't represent you in court. We can't take care of your visa applications, business-related or otherwise. And we can't conduct property transactions on your behalf without a property lawyer. Uh, we can and are regularly uh, managing those lawyers on your behalf. We provide them with the documentation they need. We pay the court or the legal registration fees as required from your account held by us on your behalf. And we can even help you shop around for the best lawyer to suit your requirements when that's necessary and even replace them if they fail to perform, same as we do with any other service providers. But we cannot act instead of a lawyer. We are also not certified translators. And even on an ad hoc level, we won't be translating all of the Japanese documentation involved in the purchase, the sale, and the management for you. What we do as your proxies and as your advisors is we give you summaries and bottom lines to the best of our understanding. And in some cases, like in the case of purchase and sale contracts or property spec documents or insurance policies, for example, there's a huge amount of industry-specific information in these documents that we wouldn't presume to have a deep understanding of, let alone the ability to professionally review and translate into English for you. So we can tell you, for example, how much the legal and registration fees are for a particular property and if they're within reason based on our experience, or how much the annual premiums are for an insurance policy, uh, what the maximum coverage is, and we can definitely tell you whether that particular insurance company has been relatively easy to deal with uh, when a claim does need to be processed. But we will not be able to let you know exactly how the legal fees or total coverage of the insurance is derived. We know that it's generally based on the property's official evaluations, but we're not insurance actuaries, and again, we're not accountants. And don't forget that also uh, property official evaluations, as they show up on tax statements, are not extremely clear. They're, they're uh, comprised of quite a few different uh, components that an accountant can sort of add up for you and let you know what the total is. And that total evaluation is normally going to be quite different to the market price, as we've mentioned here many times in the past. But for these exact calculations, you will have to communicate directly with an accountant or a legal professional in the case of legal contracts. And in all likelihood, you will have to pay them for their time if you do so. We can save you that hassle and expense based on our experience by telling you Again, in bottom lines, what to expect in each and every scenario to the best of our experience, but we cannot uh, interpret legal documents or complex financial calculations such as insurance companies, uh, insurance policies and tax returns on your behalf. This is not what we do. Similarly, we're not building inspectors. We're not zoning regulators. We can communicate with these professionals on your behalf if you have need of them. We're not asset managers, but we can appoint asset managers for you and we can supervise their work. We're not developers or resort operators, but we can research good companies for you to work with in areas where that's possible and we can manage the relationship for you and so on and so forth. So we're your arms and your legs here in Japan and we generally have a very good understanding and professional know-how uh, on how to represent you to the best and most profitable uh, results but we're not a certified jack-of-all-trades who can do anything. We're portfolio managers, we're proxies, we're project managers, we can put together a good team, we can manage them for you, we cannot replace them or act instead of them. 
So there you have it. If you've made it this far, well, for one, we're really grateful. If you sat through two hours of this podcast, it definitely means that you're finding our content valuable, which is a huge compliment for us. So again, thank you. And it also probably means that you're well and truly interested in Japan's real estate property market. And if this is the case, and if you're looking for more information, please do remember that we're always happy to talk shop, as you've probably noticed uh, listening in on all of these conversations that we've had with clients and potential clients and other interviewers and interviewees and industry professionals. So don't be shy. As always, drop us a line and let's book a day in time to talk about whatever happens to be on your mind. And if you're on Clubhouse, look me up there and follow me to get notice whenever I speak to any of the rooms there. These will mainly be Q&A sessions, so probably just what you're looking for. We've currently got a regular Wednesday room at 1.30 Japan Standard Time. And we'll soon probably start guest starring on some other global real estate rooms. If you need a Clubhouse invite, drop me a line and I'll try to sort you out. And this is also the perfect time to remind you that if you, like that lovely couple from the USA that we just heard from a couple of segments ago, if you're interested in migrating to Japan or changing over from one visa to another or starting a business or a company here in Japan, our sponsor, Hiroshi Shimizu, is very approachable and a very affordable immigration lawyer and administrative scrivener, and he can happily and efficiently help you with all of these needs. He's already done exactly that for many of our listeners and clients, so feel free to reach out to Shimizu-san on info at h-shimizu-office.com. Or just pick up the phone, give him a call on 092-732-7755. Or if you're calling from out of Japan, that's plus 8192-732-7755. And also, if you've got a product or service or project that you'd like more English speakers in Japan or English speakers who are interested in Japan to know about, drop us a line and we'll share our sponsorship programs with you. They're very affordable and they'll give you immediate exposure to thousands of Japan-centric ears every month. So that's it for a very long and information-packed compilation episode of the year. Hope you've enjoyed it. Again, all of the links to the full episodes will be in the show notes. Feel free to dive into any of them if you liked what you heard on these shorter segments. And of course, do share the podcast and this episode with your own networks. Give us a star rating or a review on the iTunes store, or just let us know what you thought in the comment section or wherever you might have found us. Hope to have you with us again next time on the Japan Real Estate Podcast. And until then, Yoshiku. Yoshiku.